0: Welcome back to the State for Performance podcast. Now, as normal, I'm always joined by people whose names I cannot pronounce. So today I'm joined by Madeline, and that's your cue, Madeline, to pronounce your second name, your surname. My
1: second name is Spreyser,
0: so just a silent J. Oh, a silent J, so Sprecer. Okay, that was easier yeah. than some of the other ones, but well, I seem to have this knack for inviting people onto the podcast where I can't pronounce their name.
1: you're not the only one don't (laughs) worry
0: and then i get mad when people mispronounce my name i'm like how do you call me duncan it's dunican there's an i in there and then i get mad but i'm the i'm the worst person for mispronouncing names (laughs) so madeline um where are you joining us from today whereabouts in the world are you uh
1: i'm in adelaide
0: adelaide in south australia
1: that's
0: it the home of the great white shark (laughs) yes did you want to (laughs) <laughs> and good wine as well. That's right. Yeah. Do you, you, do you partake in any uh, swimming with sharks or wine drinking?
1: Uh, more on the wine side <laughs> than the shark side, personally.
0: Excellent. So, Madeleine, um, can you give us a little bit of background on yourself? Uh, where did you grow up and uh, what were you interested in as a kid going to school?
1: Uh, well, I grew up in Adelaide. Um, lived here most of my life. Lived for a couple of years in Melbourne, but from here, living here currently. Um, what I was interested in as a kid, um, I was a nerd in school, I was interested in most of my subjects, uh, I did history and psychology uh, in high school, um, okay. and that sort of started my interest in psych uh, when I did it in year 11 and 12, um, and then went on to do it at uni as well.
0: Interesting. So that's an interesting combination of people to enjoy history and psychology. What, what, was, what were the sort of um, the common ground or the similarities that you've seen between those two subjects?
1: Both of them have an element of why people do things. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of why I was interested in history in high school was figuring out why these historical events happened, and I think the same thing applies to psychology: why are people doing the things they do?
0: Yeah, and when you were um, when you were studying history, uh, what kind of period of history did you most interested
1: in? Uh, I mostly studied modern European history, so. Oh, oh. Yeah, I remember doing a lot of um World War II, but also uh like French Revolution and Russian Revolution, things like that.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's kind of I like that That's era fun. as well. Yeah. I like um, sort of 1900 to about, you know, modern times in, in, in Europe as well. I'm a big fan of World War II. So I'm like one of those old sad middle-aged men on the history channel, World War II documentaries on <laughs> YouTube. Yeah. Have yeah. you ever have you ever read any of Anthony Bivore's books?
1: No, I haven't.
0: He's very good. I think originally he might have been a military officer and he just started writing. He's not a historian, but he's very, very good. Uh, he's written a book called D-Day. He's written a book called Stalingrad, uh, Berlin. Uh, Anthony Bivor, B-W-E-V-O-R. Again, I could be pronouncing that wrong. He's he's, he's very British. Um, he's been on the ABC radio a few times talking about some of his books. Um, his D-Day book is quite interesting because nearly every chapter alternates, one from the side of the Allies and then the other from the side of... Um, the, the Germans. So you're constantly getting this kind of what was happening, you know, two days out, three days out from data on both sides. And it's quite kind of interesting. And um, mm,
1: that's very interesting.
0: And he also writes very objectively. He's not, he doesn't kind of get that. I feel like sometimes in in some of the history books or documentaries, we get this very uh emotive, you know, the West was good and you know the Germans were bad. And we get that kind of flavor in it. Or Anthony Bevor just writes factually about what was happening. Um, but in yeah. an interesting style as well.
1: Yeah, that's so interesting. I feel like that's such a um, important perspective to take. Like just thinking about my own background. So you mentioned my last name. Um, so my background on my dad's side of the family is Croatian. And so my dad, my grandpa, was in the war and uh, for Croatia, obviously. So they're you know not on the Allied team. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's just super interesting to hear about you know, what his experiences were in the war. Because I think being from countries that weren't Germany, but still on that side, uh, it's just a whole different perspective.
0: Yeah, yeah, completely, yeah. And I think um, that's what worries me sometimes in today's world where, oh, that was bad, we should get rid of that statue or get rid of this or get rid of that book. It's like, well, shouldn't we look at it so we can learn from it? But then I look, look back even at Roman history, and you think when the when the Roman Empire declined, you know, and the Catholic Church emerged from the Roman Empire... That was done as well, you know.
1: Yeah. So I it's it's been di- done forever. I think there's a difference between learning from the past and glorifying it, though. And I think that's an important distinction to make.
0: Hundred percent. I totally agree with that. I think that's a really that's a really important point. That is, uh, yeah, is learning from it and not glorifying it. And then there's also that's where it does become problematic when people go back and kind of reharvest the past to glorify it to fuel a new wave of that.
1: You know, like exactly. the fort, the
0: fort right type of thing, or people use that as a method to go justify their new offshoot in a different direction. So yeah, yeah. yeah. So this is a great start to a sleep podcast <laughs> discussing yeah. World War II history. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Anthony Bevor's books are really good. If you want to check them out, if you have a secondhand bookshop in Adelaide, you'll probably see some of them floating around there. Um, they're nice and big and chunky as well. So it's re- they're really good. Anyway, so you did history and psychology um, at high school. And then what did did you study at uni? Was it psychology?
1: Yeah. Well, I actually started uh, with law and arts. I started doing a double degree and I got one semester into law and then decided that that was plenty. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I'd done psychology as uh, electives in my arts component of the degree. Um, So I swapped out of law and into psych for second year. Ah.
0: I, I've got a few friends who studied law as well, but actually went through and did a whole degree, then got jobs as as lawyers or graduate lawyers, and left within six six weeks, six months. So at least you had the good fortune to get out early, uh, and and uh, and learn from it. It's 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 um, yeah, I think it's got a from. Well, this is just my experience. There's lots of people I know who studied law. Just you know, it's not like to see on TV or like I'm not working in that industry. <laughs>
1: yeah I just remember people telling me oh well you're good at arguing so you'll be good at law and then I realized it was a lot more reading than it was arguing so yeah
0: yeah I think uh, yeah. another thing is what you hear people saying oh law has got hardly any contact hours yeah but it's got like hundreds of reading hours so you're not gonna yeah. you're not gonna wing it like and get through you know
1: <laughs> yeah yeah I have a friend who recently um left her law career uh, to go and study winemaking so I feel oh. like that's a, a good call <laughs>
0: Yeah, winemaking, that's very process. That's another thing as well that people think is very just, uh, yeah, just make wine and have a good time. It's very process-oriented and quality-driven. It's like, nearly like metallurgy. I know some people are in the coffee business, same thing as well. So like quality control and think, oh, wow, it's not just sipping lattes and having fun and giggling. It's actually quite complex, yeah.
1: Although she does get to spend quite a bit of time drinking the wine and also hanging out at wineries. So, you know, that sounds pretty appealing to me.
0: It's not. It's not too bad, Madeline. I suppose in the sleep world we get to watch people sleep, which is just equally uh, equally as cool and creepy, but at the same time, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: I say that uh, I like sleeping so much. I did a whole PhD on it. <laughs> um,
0: and so, when you were growing up, Madeline, and you were picking those subjects, what uh, you obviously said you, you studied law and arts. What What did you foresee your career to be? You know, when you were like sixteen, chewing on your pencil, looking out the window, someday I'll be a. Uh, what did you think?
1: Oh, I had no idea. No idea. Uh, yeah, I had no idea. But uh, funnily enough, my mother is also a sleep researcher or really? was when I was growing up. So I was a little bit exposed to the sleep field even way back then.
0: Oh, fascinating. And did yeah. she work at a university doing research or was she a lab tech or what, what, what capacity was, was she? Uh, she
1: did her PhD and worked um, at UniSA for a while. um and then she recently just retired from being the fatigue specialist at uh, shell what's your mother's name angela (laughs) becker i know angela (laughs)
0: yeah (laughs) there you go i did obviously different last time, so i was like oh okay yeah (laughs) I, i think angela worked at um rio Tinto for a while when i was there that's right okay sure. there we go we should have had it see there you go you have to be very careful what you say in this podcast and who's who <laughs> so yes because angela was originally and was she a nurse yeah um,
1: yeah, yeah, yes. yeah
0: yeah yeah there you go small world small world it really, yeah. is. It really I th- is i thought i thought she said when she would retire from shell recently i was going to say terry lillington do you know terry no yeah i do know terry yeah yeah uh, no but, yeah they work together
1: quite closely yeah
0: so very good so there you go that's the thing about sleep everybody if you want to get in it's nepotism it's not what you know it's who you know (laughs) (laughs) too small of a world uh did did your did your mother uh see your recent talk when you were discussing sexual activity on the sleep for performance seminar last year Uh,
1: no she didn't actually i should get it watch it though
0: Some people messaged me when you did that talk last year. I know this is science, but it's really weird to hear somebody talk about sleep and masturbation and sex and all these things. It just feels a bit wrong. I was, I was getting these messages to the side. And I was just kind of giggling away. Hopefully they the
1: interest place. I think a lot of
0: people were interested. Yeah, you probably had the highest tune in rate for that one. <laughs> we will put a link to the show notes if you want to go and have a look at that uh, talk that Madeline did last year. Anyway, we digress. We talk about family, we talk about history, we talk about sex. Let's get into this paper. Uh, Madeline, you recently uh, published uh, an excellent uh, review called How Effective Are Fatigue Risk Management Systems, in brackets FRMS, uh, review. Um, and it was published in the Accident Analysis and Prevention. How would you describe an FRMS, Madeline? What, what is it and where do we use it?
1: I guess I'll describe describe FRMS as a sort of set of data-driven principles uh, to manage fatigue uh, within an organizational setting. So a key part of that is using a risk-based approach as opposed to a prescriptive approach. So, um, you know, a lot of organizations using a prescriptive approach will have simply a limitation on how many hours you can work in a row or how many hours you can work in a week, and that's sort of how they're managing fatigue in better commas. Yeah. Um, uh, as opposed to an FRMS, which is a sort of a multi-layered system, which looks at um, the likelihood of fatigue, the consequences of that fatigue, and actually does risk assessments to determine appropriate control measures. Um, in addition to that, uh, also looking at things like uh, monitoring evaluations, so continually um, taking in data and figuring out, okay, well, what is... Is what we're doing actually working, um, making sure that the policy and governance aligns with that, uh, training and education components. So there are all these components, um, but essentially the key is that sort of risk-based framework.
0: Risk-based framework, yeah, yeah, very interesting. Mm -hmm. And um, what kind of industries, Madeline, would be using, FRMS?
1: Uh, Mostly industries that um, use shift work and have fatigue as sort of a, a significant hazard. Um, so a lot of what we found in this review um, is it's sort of the main industries where we look at FRMS are things like, uh, industries like the transport industry, um, aviation, and also healthcare. Um, in addition to that, though, you know, we see FRMSs or components of FRMSs in other industries where ship workers use. So things like emergency services, you're going to see FRMSs uh, potentially as well.
0: Yeah, and I think you also see it then in, um, in, in mining, oil and gas, um, yeah. You know, Which said there's emergency services, utilities, all the, all these groups. But I think what's yeah. interesting is people say to have an FRMS. And when you scratch the top of the uh of the itch and you see below, they actually just have a, a couple of policies or documents or a couple of things that to do. It's not really truly an FRMS as you as you alluded to, it's uh or described, it's a kind of a multidimensional process of lots of different things happening that is risk-based, based upon data, you know, continually evolving. It's not just a set of like rules, as in um you know, thou shalt not work more than 10 hours a day for four days in a row, you know.
1: Yeah, and no, I, I totally agree. And it's, it's interesting because you look into it a bit more and there are some uh, organizations and industries that use the term risk management systems or FRMS, but they're not actually referring to what you and I would probably consider to be an FRMS. They're more saying, okay, well, we're managing the risk by limiting the hours of work yes. rather than by using a risk assessment process
0: yeah and i, I said to, i said to people for that response as well when i'm working with businesses or in any research capacity what you have there is a is a procedure or a policy or a document that you know basically is prescriptive and it's the first level in terms of risk uh, fatigue risk management maturity you need you may need elements of that to get some stability but it's not a truly a fatigue risk management system it's uh, yeah. it's compliance based really or kind of rules based yeah yeah
1: yeah, and that's sort of where we ended up um, with this review talking about the potential for that sort of prescriptive, prescriptive side of things to be integrated to a certain degree with the risk-based uh, components of FRMS as well. So we're seeing more and more that um, sort of these hybrid models are maybe a bit more appealing for some organizations where they can kind of do both.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting thing because I, I would uh, I would agree with that from a practical standpoint. It's very hard for a company to go from, if we look at lots of companies, they will look straight away to local legislation from a federal, state, or regional mm-hmm. level. They look at industry bodies, and they will kind of, that's where they'll start looking like, what do I have to do? What's the guidance? You know, what's the, what's the kind of best practice? And they'll very much will look to government and regulatory sources initially for that and try and get this kind of the outer sketch or the shape of what they have to do. And I think if you don't have that or you don't develop a set of um, some... You need some element of prescriptive guidelines. And what I call them is like, they're nearly like an outer boundary fence. You need to have those markers in there and go, look, we can't really go past 100 hours a week, for example. We can't be doing six weeks continuous night shift. We can't have people starting at 3 a.m. and starting at 3 p.m. and finishing at 3 p.m. These are the things we know from research and government and so on. It might be very prescriptive by the government, but here's what we know. So here's our outer boundaries. And then we can start building the... um, the system within that kind of color in between the lines. Um, So it's really interesting you say that because I think from a practical standpoint of view, businesses like that, because then it's not so vague and wishy-washy and people don't have the maturity to keep adapting to data like that. So they need a bedrock to build from prescriptive compliance into, you know, out of the reactive phase, into the more proactive phase, and then get into the more predictive phase. And I, I know you've got some of that in your paper. And interesting enough... That is very similar to asset management models. So if you talk about in the engineering sphere, they have a lot of that sort of wording as well. You kind of get the base in, you go into you try and manage the reactive, then you get into the proactive, and then you get into the predictive. So you're kind of managing breakdowns, then you manage them better you can react to them better and then you start predicting when those breakdowns are going to happen based upon your data. And then you kind of, the next level is you go to like world-class where you integrate all of those. So lots of similarities I found with your paper and engineering.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And I think it's an interesting point you raised that uh, taking into consideration some potentially external boundaries that you can work within, I would sort of see it from maybe the other perspective. And what we do talk a little bit about in the paper as well is perhaps having... Of reduced minimum boundaries under which uh, you can just use those prescriptive guidelines. So, um, for example, um, I guess tightening those outer limits and then saying, okay, well, if you want to go beyond that, that's when you need to start looking at a risk based approach to managing that. So, you know, if you want to work up to eight hours in a row, great, feel free. You don't need any additional management strategies. But if you want to be working up to 12 hours or beyond 12 hours in a row, that's when you need to start bringing in that sort of FRMS approach.
0: Yeah, that's, a, that's, that's an excellent point. Yeah, it's not saying you can't go above them or beyond them. It's about if you go above them and beyond them, these are the these are the additional controls you have to put in place. So if you yeah, can't exactly. if can if you can't eliminate using like the hierarchy of control hours safety, if you can't eliminate those hours of work or that extended work, here's what we need to do. We need to, you know, bring in extra people to allow more breaks. We need to bring in technology to monitor people, you know, whatever it might be. Um, it's it's layering those in.
1: Yeah. And I think that's a really important point, um, with I guess just identifying what FRMS is generally. I think it's not about saying you're never going to be fatigued, let's eliminate fatigue. It's about saying okay, people are going to be fatigued, particularly in shift working industries. There's no yeah. real way around that. So let's identify it and manage it so people can be safe even when they are fatigued.
0: Yeah, and that that, that again is an interesting point because I, I, you've reminded me of, I gave a talk um, within a mining company, uh oh, must have been, I would say it was good 11 years ago to a lot of executives. And one of them who was quite, Educate and engineering went, yeah, well, that's all well and good, but surely there must be some sort of tablet that people can take. You know, we've, we've become that advanced with medicine that we can eliminate fatigue. I went, you're kind of referring there to things like modafinil or types of speed, really. I said, yeah, they'll help people overcome. I said, there's lots of research on that, like military activity. They'll overcome short periods, but it doesn't promote or allow for long-term adaptation. Like, you know, and you explained that whole thing that we are diurnal animals and we're meant to sleep at night, meant to be awake during the day. So, unless you can completely flip the rhythms of life and the world into a different solar system and completely invert everything, you're not going to be able to, uh, you know, have pure perfect vigilance and attention at nighttime when working shift worker in these periods, because that's just the way we're designed as humans. And I don't know if there's, there's no way really we can engineer that unless we take people and, um, you know, manage complete light exposure and don't have them, interact with the rest of the world is probably the only way we can do that and who's going to want to sign up for that job that's like a mission to mars job for three years you know so you know it's very um it's very hard to do you know
1: yeah that's a very good point that's a very yeah. good point and <laughs> yeah i think um it's a mistake some some people make thinking, oh well people that work permanent nights they must just be adapted but you kind of forget that there's a whole whole spectrum of life outside of work time so you know as soon as you have a day off then that all gets flipped on its head and
0: exactly yeah. and then we see all no like that's going to
1: be wanting to maintain that
0: that's for sure yeah and then you see all the negative aspects associated with permanent night shift from individual health to long-term health sorry short-term individual health to long-term health impacts and then as you said social community you know the whole lot I, I've seen people have worked permanent night shift and you know they're, they're like zombies really they're just constantly look tired and fatigued and i do a lot of training with guys who are shift workers and you see them coming off night shift even the next day and they're like gray in the face you can and especially when you're doing like a combat sport you can feel the difference in the energy of that person out that day but when they're well arrested they're far more attentive stronger react better but even like a short like two night shifts and they come in then after a four or five hour sleep they can really see the difference in it
1: yeah i think i've uh, i've met one person who did permanent night shifts who seemed really well adapted to it just like just one you know like yeah, yeah. all the people that i've spoken to and everything and she was a nurse in um a hospital in victoria and she just had her whole life set up around these permanent night shifts and she, you know really worked really well from like a childcare perspective and you know for her social stuff it kind of fit in really well as well um, but yeah one person so i don't know there may be a bit of individual differences going on there and how you set your life up yeah, yeah. but yeah overwhelmingly i i can do it you know? we
0: we'll have, we'll have to take a sample of her brain and implant it in everybody else else and do a little brain <laughs> transplant so we can adapt um, and yeah. yeah that's not a real thing if anybody's thinking that's a real thing i'm just joking <laughs> uh it's called taking the piss and uh, madeline in your uh, review process um your search strategies are quite kind of interesting. you use a term that i've seen a lot recently but many people may be not a, uh, aware of it so when we do these systematic reviews you obviously go through all these databases like you know, Google Scholar, for example, or Medline, or Scopus, or Web of Science, and you kind of go with all these search terms, and you come down, and you've obviously outlined the search terms here. But you've also gone through a grey literature search strategy. What's grey literature?
1: Uh, So grey literature essentially refers to literature that's outside of the sort of peer-reviewed journal articles. So um, we thought it was particularly important to include other kinds of documents in this review, because a lot of what we're talking about is the impact of FRMS on industries and organizations. And so a lot of our literature is gonna be, you know, reports from certain companies or guidelines or um, anything sort of in that industrial space that hasn't gone through that rigorous, uh, you know, academic peer review process. Uh, It's a really difficult thing to include in something like a systematic review though, because there's no one repository where all of these types of documents are held. Um, And so that does introduce sort of an element of bias. as we mentioned in the paper, there's not really any way around that. Um, You know, we can do our best to look through all the databases that we do do know of and use, you know, industry contacts and what's available, you know, just on the web generally. Um, But it does mean you're just trying to get all the information from those industry sources you can. And there's not a real way to do it in the systematic way as we think of with a normal systematic review.
0: Yeah. So what was what was interesting that you may have found in that gray literature that may have not met it into the paper, just even anecdotally what what, what was what was your, was there anything surprising in that that was really different than the published literature?
1: Um, I don't know about necessarily specifically different from the published literature, but it's more perspective. So a lot of what we found in the gray literature was sort of um, you know internal guidelines and policies and procedures that actual companies are using. Um so it was interesting to see, I guess, that combination of FRMS with the prescriptive systems. And we did see that, you know, coming from those industry sources. So that sort of has informed some of what we talk about in the discussion where um, we talk about how those hybrid approaches might be preferred by industry because it does seem like that is what some of those industrial sources are saying.
0: Yeah. Hmm. And when you looked at all these different, because obviously when you search all these things, like you said, it was healthcare, it was, you know, firefighters, it was whatever. Would there be any group in there that you think would be leaders, best practice that you would kind of go to, to, uh, you know, steal and cheat from and say, these are the best. I'm going to kind of look at what they're doing.
1: Um, I think probably some of the most advanced uh, systems that we saw were uh, in the aviation industry. Um, So in particular, a lot of the guidelines um, from, you know, international aviation organizations, are already taking sort of an FRMS risk-based approach in ways that other industries aren't. Um, So I think definitely them. Uh, It was also really interesting looking at um, sort of the transport industries and how they approach things differently. And I think um, a really good example is just the Australian heavy vehicle uh, industry. So um, documentation from the NHBR here in Australia um, which includes uh, various levels of compliance and or risk-based approaches that you can take. So I think that's a really interesting source to be looking at as
0: well. Excellent. Now you've organized your findings here into kind of three groups, I would say. Well, this, is what, this is what I found from it, which I found probably really interesting was the predictive, the proactive, and the reactive that we just spoken about. How would you describe the elements of the reactive bucket, if you want to call it that, or the bin? What, what's in reactive
1: uh, so I guess just to provide a bit more context about what those three terms mean. Yep, yep. So essentially the predictive, proactive, reactive are three sort of levels or points at which fatigue can be managed. So the reactive specifically is about what an organisation is going to do in response to fatigue or incidents or accidents or, you know, in any sort of situation that's already occurring within that company. So that's things like incident investigation, particularly. Um, And so sort of acting in a reactive way rather than a proactive way, as the name suggests.
0: Okay. And then, so we got in the reactive area, we have incident investigation and fatigue importance. This is like basically after the fact or something's happened where people have exceeded an hours hours of work or they haven't complied. Um, Or even in some ways, they may have had like, an audit, an external audit could even be in there as a kind of a finding or, a, or issues that are very much based upon the past as well.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, and it, it's a particularly important part of an FRMS to have those sort of ways of looking back at what's actually happening within the organization because that's yeah. how that sort of uh, continual monitoring and evaluation component of, a, of an FRMS can happen as part of that feeding the data back into the system so that um, the organization can learn from it. You know, that's a really important part of FRMS, but it's a you know evolving thing. It's not just saying, well, we've got it right immediately and that's it.
0: Let's leave it. Yeah, 100 percent And I often in, in my sort of applied consulting work, I often look at other data sources as well across health and safety and and HR people related stuff as well to look for that reactive thing where you see, like maybe across the year there's been high absenteeism. We've had you know high sick rate, whatever it might be. Um, and these are all areas then, because obviously. You talk about defenses in depth um, to use Kirsty McCulloch's model and Drew Dawson's. And it's obviously been kind of aligned with the James Reason model from the Swiss cheese stuff in 1997, which basically talks about if you don't have enough staff at the start, you know, you're basically going to be in this kind of a, a tailspin or a loop. If, you're, if your staffing is down by 20%, you're going to just kind of induce, revoke fatigue in the 80% of the staff that's left. So it's about getting that right as well at the start.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting point to bring up. That just makes me think of, you know, everything that's in the news at the moment about how all of our healthcare workers, yeah. are, well, and lots of industries are down so many workers at the moment because people are in, you know, covert isolation and everything. And how, you know, there's not really a way to manage fatigue at a certain point, uh, you know, super effectively, at least, when you are down 20% of the workforce.
0: Yes. And sometimes you just cannot get past. I have got some companies i work with when i'm like if you have an fte on like a full-time equivalent account of a hundred people but you only have 60 people employed you're just going to have fatigue issues so at the base level but now it's about what controls or what strategies can we put in place to help them it's not saying we can't do anything but it's like fundamentally until you fix that problem we're just doing containments or band-aid solutions you know we're just we got we to gotta wait till we get to get surgery, but these are the things we can do in the <laughs> meantime. But until, until you get that, you you got two options, either recruit the people or redesign your work processes Because yeah. and, and try and lower your headcount through redesign of work. But you're just always going to have that issue. So you're you know you're not going to get out of jail free. You can't continually keep doing that because then what happens is the people that get fatigued. If you start doing that long-term, what happens then? People go, well, why, why am I going to work here? I'm just wrecked the whole time. I'm working like 80 hours a week. And it's never-ending because not recruiting people i did my best for six months and this is what happened
1: yeah and yeah. i think that's a really uh, good point but then kind of feeds into the proactive component uh because a lot of the proactive uh side of things is about that sort of modeling and planning in advance to try to avoid those sorts of outcomes so um particularly in this review a lot of the proactive um component that we looked at was or at least we have found a lot of papers on it um, was on things like biomathematical modeling and how yeah. that can be used to do those sorts of things like workforce planning. Like what, what is this going to look like from you know, a bit of a bird's eye view?
0: Yeah, I think the proactive area here is really interesting because um, what you've spoken about here is like prior sleep-wake behaviors, alertness management, education, self-assessment the use of light performance measurement and so on but the one here i really like that you've used the wording is fatigue detection technologies and the word detection is key for me because i think that so many people think by strapping on a fitbit or a wrist-worn technology or putting some sort of device in the cabin of a cab of a truck or in a light vehicle or whatever it might be that oh we have a technology that's that's our like i've seen people go that's our fatigue countermeasure i'm like So how does that work well because it tells them that they're fatigued yeah but how does that work and you go because all it's doing really is providing you with data and it's providing you with early warning systems it actually does not eliminate fatigue and i think again coming back to my medication example too many people think that the technology is a silver bullet Mm
1: -hmm. and a
0: classic example is since the invention and the deployment of the weighing scales in everybody's bathroom have we you know cracked the obesity epidemic or if you want to call it that, you know, that people call it, the. I don't know if it's classified as an epidemic or not, but the obesity problems that many countries face. And I would say we haven't, if anything, we're going the other way. So the weighing scale has not actually lower people's weight And um, overall. Maybe for some people it's helped as a measurement tool. So why do we think fatigue detection technologies and the key word being detection will actually improve people's sleep? Because again, we're seeing that sleep is still being impaired regardless of technology application.
1: Yeah, and I think that's something that's definitely coming up in industry at the moment, where a lot of companies are bringing in different types of fatigue detection technology, but then they don't actually know how to integrate that with their system. Um, So, you know, just for example, if you have, you know, seeing machines or, you know, some other technology in your fleet of trucks and, you know, they're giving you alerts that your driver is tired, you know, they've had some eye closures or, you know, whatever it is that that particular technology is identifying, what do you actually do with that information? What does that trigger and how do you actually yeah, yeah. manage that and just to correct myself i think i said proactive when i meant uh, predictive rather than when i was talking about modeling i was more talking about that original step before then getting to the uh proactive yeah yeah, um, yeah. that's okay
0: we'll jump to that bucket in a second but i think yeah. um i i, I think there could be an argument that modeling is proactive as well because you can use actually to be honest with you i think madeline that you can use modeling at all of those levels, because you can actually use some of the models to do incident investigations.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And I guess guess just when I was talking about sort of workforce planning, that's where I would see it probably being at that predictive state. But then, no, you're absolutely right. And even at the proactive point, being able to look at a specific individual's modelling, I think that can play a really big role there. You know, to figure out how many people you need in your workforce, it's probably going to be a bit too late at that point.
0: Yeah. So I I think there's an argument that it can be be used across all of those levels. just to give you an example of what you brought up on the seeing machines as an example, this is actually a really interesting point. And I'll, I'll blow the trumpet of my consultancy business here because because <laughs> um, it's all published in the domain. Um, so there's a little bit of a case study on our, over on our website, Amelia's Consulting, um, that people can look at. That was the exact problem, Madeline, that we did with Anglo Gold Ashanti um, down in Tropicana Mine in the gold fields in Western Australia. They had seeing machines on their Caterpillar trucks in mining. And basically, that all this data. And then they were like, wait now, this is getting worse. What do we do? So we actually set up a program with them where we worked with a local sleep physician here in Perth, in Western Australia, Dr. Jack Philpott at SleepWA. And we set up a system where we basically pre-charted the data every month about the number of alarms, or where were those alarms happening, like on day shift or night shift, whereabouts in the cycle of the roster, and then the people who had the highest alarms. So again, using a risk management strategy, who's the person that has all of these alarms, right? So we were kind of constantly looking at reducing the risk with people because we found the old 80-20 rule again, that 20% of people were responsible for 80% of the alarms. So we put in a process where we did some pre-screening with them, looking at you know demographic factors and anthropometric factors, sleep disorder questionnaires, and so on. And then um, we used uh, a level three PSG on-site, uh, ResMed one, to basically... You know, detect the prevalence. And we were like 95% accurate of diagno- with, with sleep WA of identifying and then consequently diagnosing people with sleep apnea from that process. And that wasn't a punitive process. That was like, okay, you have sleep apnea. Here is a management plan. Some people decided to get CPAP, for example, some people decided to, to lose weight. Other people made some changes, and we had over a 40% reduction in risk. Which is quite significant because all that reduction in risk increases your uptime or operating time, which allows you to be more productive in the mind side as well. So, there's that kind of bigger benefit to you know, you can actually help people lower individual risk, decrease organizational safety risk, and increase productivity as well. So, there can be this multi benefit dimension to doing these things. But it's just interesting you brought that specific example out me prompting you before the podcast <laughs> because we had to solve that exact problem for a business. So, yeah, it's 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 a it's a really good example.
1: Yeah, and I think it's interesting to think about it, not just in terms of identifying those individuals who might be more at risk or certain routes or certain times of day or all these kind of risk factors, but I think it's also important to think about what that person actually does practically when they get the alarm in the moment. Yes. And I think that's a kind of a key component that's often missing as well. You know, do you pull over after the first alarm? Then what? How do you get back to base? Yeah. Or is it two alarms? Or okay, does one alarm mean you pull over and have a coffee? Or you know, like what? what are the actual practical strategies, and how is that being managed uh, at a you know personal and organizational level?
0: Yeah, and to come back to your point earlier on about people just being tired on night shifts, you know, a lot of companies are like, oh, we're having all these alarms between three and six o'clock in the morning. I go, yeah, that's normal. What do you mean? I'm like, it's normal. That's like the lowest point in your circadian rhythm at twenty four hours. I'd be surprised if it wasn't there. And they yeah. kind of go, oh, okay, so it's okay, it's okay. Yeah, yeah. So you, sometimes like applying that science to an operational environment, it kind of gives the operational leaders a reassurance of what's happening is actually normal that it's not completely gone the other way as well. Again, this is why the key word here is detection technologies, which I think is is a great is a great addition in there in the middle. Um, because people view this as the silver bullet. You also have uh, predictive in there as well, Madeline. So what's the predictive aspect? You've got hours of work, biomathematical models, breaks, and health screening. Uh,
1: Yeah, so I guess when we think about predictive, uh, I guess, countermeasures or components of an FRMS, it's really taking that step back and sort of looking as the name suggests again in a predictive way, so what can we predict about what risk we're going to see based on things like hours of work um, and also you know individual risk factors, so that health screening. Um, So you'll see there in the paper we didn't actually find that much on breaks or health screening really, um, which was quite interesting. Um, But a lot of what we did find was on hours of work, and I think hours of work is a really interesting one, because you know we can both conceptualize it as that sort of predictive strategy you know if people work less hours they're probably going to be less fatigued so we can control fatigue to some degree in that respect but then also as well as being that so part of an frms it really is just part of a prescriptive system generally and there are lots of systems that rely on that as their only fatigue management strategy
0: yeah and when we talk about breaks we're talking about breaks within the shift we're talking about breaks between the shift and we're also t- talking about then breaks between the roster cycle so some yeah. people might you know, work seven days on, seven days off, that seven days off is a break. But I think also as well, we have to be careful when we're scheduling breaks because there's an assumption, sometimes or an implied assumption, that people are sitting down resting some people might have another job and that's seven days. Yes, that is <laughs> right. a very
1: interesting one, isn't
0: it? <laughs> you know, So some people have a second job or other people might go home to a, a household that's probably busier than work. I've heard a lot of men and women say, ah, I'd rather be at work because it's not as bad as, <laughs> as I've been at home. I've got three crazy boys aged between seven and 12 and it's just constant chaos. So there's all those things as well that needs to be taken into account. Um, and it's all those like external factors um, that come in or classically we see as well, even people in managerial roles that have these odd working hours where they might come in at seven and finish at four or five, could sometimes be until seven or eight, but then maybe like, you know, studying and doing a master's in the evening as professional development or trying to study on the weekend and got kids as well. That in itself is just an accumulation of working time for, for that person. Um, and then that can also lead to fatigue as well, even though they're not on, you know, a classic shift in roster pattern as well.
1: Yeah, and I think that's where some of those proactive measures, like, like just wearing a Fitbit or something like that, can actually be quite a useful strategy just in terms of monitoring your own sleep because there are so many factors external to work that can impact your sleep and fatigue and it can impact how you go at work. So no, I think it's a really important point that organizations need to think about with yes, work time, but also non-work time.
0: Yeah. So Madeline, here's a kind of an off-the-cuff question for you, which just kind of popped up in my head, um, which is, over the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of changes to the workplaces happening for shift workers and what's will say day workers, we're to call it that. And one of the things that I've reflected on that we need to build into our messes is actually the scheduling of meeting times um, from a Zoom perspective, like you and I today are on Zoom doing a podcast, but how do we schedule it, especially in multi um, multinational companies where you got someone up at like three o'clock in New York and it might be like five o'clock in Sydney, whatever it might be. And um, That's kind of an element that I've started to introduce with some people. Uh, in, in, in businesses because you know it's always one or two people getting absolutely you know screwed in terms of meeting times They're up at like yeah. three in <laughs> the morning so how do we build a model that we can kind of share that um, distress around and um, and also everybody gets a taste so they know it's not that good as well which changes <laughs> some people's behaviors but now since you publish this paper and the way the world has gone with lots of changes is there anything you would have added in or you would recommend that should be looked at as part of an FOMS going forward
1: uh, well, I mean, I guess considering differences in time zones is also something you could think about in terms of FRMs. But you know, to be honest, I think a lot of that is sort of encapsulated in the sort of tracking and like devices and modeling and all these sorts of things could be used to capture those sort of novel working environments. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of what is about an, is an FRMs is about is about looking at what's being done and then feeding learnings from that back into the system. So I think, you know, if we were doing this now and we were thinking about, um, you know, Zoom specifically and the impacts of COVID on, you know, working from home and this, that and the other, you know, they're things we could think about, but they're not inherent differences in the system itself. They're sort of things that the system can be used to manage. Yeah, but yeah, I think you make a very good point that it's uh, important to share the love in terms of the uh, <laughs> undesirable, shall we say, times of the day for meetings.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that that that's my always always my advice to somebody in like a managerial or professional role that's working with shift workers is like before you start, you know, screwing around with people's working time and shift go and just do two or three night shifts. You don't have to do like, you know, seven or eight night shifts. Go and just do two or three and see how you feel because you might be a little bit more empathetic to, to people doing that. And so, you know, it it'll really change your mind on, um, you know, what, what goes on because, um, yeah it's one of the reasons I don't do shift work
1: (laughs) yes I don't do it either if I can possibly avoid it
0: (laughs) yeah I I, I don't like it whatsoever another reason why I don't want to work in a lab either because you have to stay up overnight watching people sleep that's why I Mm -hmm. like more the the chronobiology world applied application of sleep science into the into the world you can just work during daylight hours it's perfect
1: (laughs) yeah I was fortunate enough that when I, I did a lab study for my PhD but I was fortunate enough that um uh, the protocol that I was doing was a lot of overnight sleep and daytime um, like testing and stuff. Not so right. I got the day shifts, but fortunately that worked out nicely um, for me.
0: <laughs> yeah, I did. I did a couple of lab-based ones in mine mm-hmm. as well, and I remember like getting up the next morning, people getting up and going, and they were like, "Oh, do you like doing this?" I said, "No, not really." I said, "This is why I left the military. <laughs> like I, this, <laughs> this staying awake at nighttime crack is not for me. I don't, I don't want to enjoy it at all." <laughs> yeah,
1: I always say that my brain turns off at about 10 p.m. So uh, I try to avoid it where I can too.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was just like, <laughs> so, Madeline, what, what are some of the barriers that are in place for people trying to implement these FR, FRMS systems? Because be, they're FR, well, fatigue risk management systems, um, because it can be quite daunting for small companies, mid or even big companies to look at putting these in. So, what, what do you foresee as the, the barriers to implementing these in a the business?
1: I mean, I think the sort of two, I guess, main categories of barriers, um, but also enablers, you know, I guess barriers and enablers are sort of two sides of the same coin. Um, uh, sort of the practical barriers are enablers, so particularly things like cost, um, and then also sort of uh, culture. Um, so, for example, things like uh does the company operate under a shared responsibility framework and do they have a just culture and, you know, how advanced are they in terms of that organisational culture in terms of fatigue reporting? Are, are workers feeling that they, uh, you know, are, are they going to be treated differently if they report fatigue or they gonna yeah. be punished? You know, all those kinds of cultural things can be really important to consider as well. Um, so I guess essentially what we found uh, was that if companies don't have a, a you know, advanced sort of, safety culture you know not necessarily just to do with fatigue but with you know other safety aspects as well then it can be a bit of a bigger leap to implement an FRMS uh, because a lot of what that is is based on that shared responsibility so the organization taking responsibility but then also putting trust and responsibility in the workers Um, so that that culture there is really important but on top of that as I said the other side of things is really the cost yeah. Um, and the sort of resources required to manage and implement an FRMS. And that can be a real barrier, particularly for sort of smaller organisations or industries where there's not um, support at the regulatory level.
0: And another, another question that people, people ask is like, where should I start with an FRMS? And I always say, I actually look to exercise physiology for this answer and strength and conditioning, because when you work with an athlete, people go like, oh, what's the best training programme, you know? you know, should I lift weights three times a week, run twice, swim, whatever? And the answer is, again, is like, it depends. What do you like doing? And so with companies, as well as like, where should I start? And I'll always say, where do you think the problem is? And also, where do people in the business think the problem is? Because if it's just about education initially, we should pull on that thread and we should pull on that thing that people like and we should educate people. And we should, because then you might get a mass wave of going, oh, actually, after all that education, we should work on shifts and rosters, but vice versa. If we've got a shift and roster problem or a staffing problem, like we said, we should be looking on which one of those that the business has the appetite to pull on. Now, that's my experience and, and, and sort of how I do it. Do you have another or any alternatives to start an FRMS within a business that we could do in a more systematic approach?
1: I mean, I think you make a really good point that just sort of starting where you can and actually just making that first step is a really critical thing. Um, and I would add to that that you know consulting with the people who are actually mm-hmm. in the roles that are affected is a really important part of that because you know it's all well and good for a company to say right we're doing an FRMS now uh, everything's changing but if you don't actually have that buy-in from what well, I guess the worker and that the managerial level then it's going to be really really difficult so I think starting the conversation there is really can be really helpful.
0: Yeah, and some companies are reluctant to do that because they're afraid of pushback or kickback initially, but I think in the companies that do it really early. Are the companies that get the most acceptance the companies that try to design a lot of work and then bring it to the to the to the people doing the work for ratification or feedback? Generally, then we get ourselves in a whole consultation, change management tailspin for months on end, and we lose a lot of goodwill um, yeah. from people as well. And we don't get that buy-in engagement. We should bring people into the tent sooner rather than later, because then what we do is we create we we end up creating this division. Oh yeah, management in there working on this thing not asking us we're the ones doing the job what do you care you go home at five o'clock so i think it's a really important point that we bring people in really early on the journey mm. and yeah it might be hard and you might get swore at and people might want to throw something at you and they might want to you know call you a shiny arse and someone who comes in here wearing a suit and doesn't know what we do but you know just go in and take that and, and get engagement because that is that is key i think it's a it's a really key aspect of it yeah it's
1: yeah. It's the difference i think between actual genuine consultation and sort of a consultation in name only where you know you're doing it because maybe you have to under the legislation your organization operates under or whatever um but you know just doing it as a box ticking exercise as opposed to actually hearing the feedback and actually integrating that into the system as you're developing it
0: and like i was saying with the night shifts as well even if you, if you particularly if you don't know the industry try and do what we would call like a go look see and this is very much you see this a lot in toyota management production sh- systems so lean manufacturing people would probably know it as one of the key aspects there is when you have a problem the first thing you should do is go and look and see because we could be talking about two different things and i've yeah. seen this as well in my own experience like you know oh there's a problem with xyz all right let's go have a look okay what's the problem with that and you're pointing at no, no, what's talking about that? Let's talking about the one over here? And like, oh, okay. So we had like 10 hours of discussion about a problem that were actually two different problems, but now we're sort of aligned on what the actual problem is. So go mm-hmm. and look in and see what the problem is, but also as well to understand the process and the, and the drivers of the business is, is, is key as well. Um, so any chance you get to do that is, is really beneficial. And it's good fun to get out there and see what's going on um, from a perspective in a manufacturing plant or in transportation or aviation or in mining, it's all it's it's all good and and there's it's it's all learning and it's uh, it's never going to be wasted and it's it's generally good fun. I think you get a lot of respect. You get a lot of what I call it, street cred for going out and doing that with people as well when you engage. Yeah, people.
1: definitely, and not to mention that for you know people like you and I, it's really fun to get to go visit a site or whatever, get get out of the office or get out of the home office as it is at the moment, you know. I yeah, I, I, I'd like yeah. to
0: go somewhere else in mine sites. So I've probably seen enough mine sites.
1: <laughs> I did some work a couple of years ago at um, some sewage treatment plants. So oh. <laughs> I don't know if that's better or worse, but it was <laughs> certainly an experience. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yes. Uh, yeah. I've been in one or two. It's it's not fun. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's funny for them because they're watching you gagging and they don't even register. <laughs> the, the people are like, oh, "What?" and you're like, "What?" Um, yeah. <laughs> I think I did it pretty
1: well. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, so Madeline, what's next in terms of uh research for you? What are you What are you working on? What's exciting? What's coming up in twenty twenty two?
1: Uh, well, what I'm most excited about at the moment is a project that I'm working on looking at uh, fatigue related driving risk uh, in new parents. Oh, so, yeah. So that's really uh, cool. Yeah. Some colleagues of mine and I uh, did another systematic review that i um, sort of working at the moment um, that identified that there's a real lack of research in um, certain vulnerable populations. Uh, in terms of driving risks, So, you know, there's so much literature and so much research out there on how shift work and night shifts mm. affects, you know, fatigue and driving and blah, blah, blah. But there's this whole population who are having, you know, really short sleep opportunities, really broken sleep and high levels of daytime fatigue. Uh, but there's just nothing addressing that. And we don't actually know the scope of the problem. And we don't know, Um, you know can we maybe apply the lessons from fatigue management within organizations to this other vulnerable population
0: so Uh, that's that's really interesting I got I got asked actually on the weekend at my local gym and I I don't really I got asked about the driving risk for parents and also then about you know helping kids to go to sleep and I was like well first of all I don't discuss pediatrics because I never win I just get in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) I, 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 I spoke at a thing called toddler fest years ago and loads of people come up and ask me questions about sleep. About your kids, and then the minute I start answering, people got mad at me. But my kid is good. I'm like, I'm not questioning your kid's behavior. I'm just—you asked me a scientific question. I'm just telling you. And I swore <laughs> never again. I'm just like, and then people start like, "You know Do you even have kids? What would you know? Do you look after your kid?" Like, I was like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! I—you just asked me a scientific question. I—I'm I not getting into it." <laughs> so, but, so you're saying
1: it's good that I'm focusing on the parents, not the kids, then? <laughs> you,
0: oh yeah, I, I would never touch pediatrics but Yeah, it's too emotive for me, and I—I I, yeah, it, that's that's you know, I think I'd rather go and try and retrain as a physicist as as opposed to do that because it's too hard, but the driving risk is a really interesting one because, um, I do talk about that to people and talk about, you know, managing sleep. And you talk about this fragmentation overnight, getting up, um, and going to try and pick up kids or drop off kids and then go to work during the day. You know, both men and women are doing it really hard. I'd say probably more women than men. So it'd be interesting if you were looking at the differences in terms of gender, who's, who's most affected, but, um, it's it's really it's really high risk you know when you talk, think about the difference there I'm, i'd be really interested to see that so is, is that systematic review being published or is it out uh, it's
1: under review at the under moment. review i'd
0: be really interested to see that and maybe if you're willing to come back on and discuss that because that is a question i get asked a lot and a lot of people would be interested in that
1: yeah for sure and um yeah. we're actually doing some data collection as well so we've got that review that's under review at the moment And um, uh, we're doing some data collection at the moment. Um, We've got some new mums who are wearing activity monitors and completing sleep and driving diaries and those sorts of measures. So hopefully we'll have some actual data to come out later this year. And, yeah, as you said, I'm hoping to sort of expand it to new parents who've gone back to work. So not necessarily looking at gender differences because, you know, there's mums who are back at work as well as dads and plenty of uh, non-heterosexual couples who I don't want to exclude. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's really interesting about the work versus non-work. So I think there's a question of exposure to driving risk that I'm mm-hmm. particularly interested in, sort of the bed app being the next step. So, you know, I'm, I'm imagining that, and again, we don't have the data yet, but collecting at the moment, um, that new parents who are the main caregiver who aren't working, their sleep is probably more disrupted, but they're probably less exposed to driving, yeah, as opposed yeah. to parents who are working who maybe get a bit more sleep overnight, but then don't really have a choice about whether they're driving to work or not. So I think there's a question of how do we apply sort of a risk assessment framework to that, including work and non-work.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's 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 you know it's it's interesting because like you said, there's not much out there, but it's a big problem. So it's yeah, really exactly. practical, um, practical thing to look at. Yeah, I might write a consensus statement on this to actually highlight the countermeasures against this, which I have been. Uh, using over the last 20-odd years, which is just don't have kids. (laughs) It'll be a one-line consensus statement. Nice and snappy. Nice and snappy, yeah. (laughs) Welcome to the consensus statement. Line one, Mm -hmm. don't have kids. Thank you for reading this consensus statement. For more information, contact me, which is a nice segue into Madeline. If people want to contact you, follow your work, maybe uh, get involved in your studies going forward or just keep up to date with what you're doing, how can people follow you?
1: Uh, So I'm on Twitter at mspracer, M-S-P-R-A-J-C-E-R, uh, on Twitter, um, uh, you can also follow me on you know all the normal places you know ResearchGate etc. Um, and if you want to get in touch, uh, you can also uh, just email me.
0: Excellent. We will put all those links down the bottom. Are you on LinkedIn as well, Madeline? I sure am. Excellent. We'll just put links in for Twitter, ResearchGate, LinkedIn, and an email address. And uh, yeah, we'll let people follow you up and. Hopefully, someone out there has got lots of money and wants to fund your research, and which would be great. That would be great. We're (laughs) we're yet to have one of those people, but we know you're out there waiting, so this could be the project for you. Madeline, have a great day. Thank you very much.
1: Great. Thanks so much.